Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, Nehemiah chapter 9. Let's review some things before we get into this rather long chapter 9 of Nehemiah. Chapter 8 was essentially about Ezra teaching the assembled crowd of Jews in Jerusalem the Torah. Or more specifically, the law of Moses, which is just part of the Torah. I want to remind you that while the terms... Torah and the law are often spoken of as synonymous. In fact, they are not the same things. The Torah is the entirety of the first five books of the Bible. The law refers to that part of the Torah that's found in Leviticus, Numbers, and part of Deuteronomy, which represents the full body of laws and of regulations. Tradition says there are uh, 613 of these laws. And these are the laws that the Lord gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. So, no doubt, Ezra and the Levites were instructing the people on the law. It needs to be carefully noticed first that Ezra is a priest of sorts. He is not the high priest. Rather, he's some kind of an unspecified overseer over the entire temple system and priesthood, acting as both a reformer and as the final authority. His authority was given to him by King Artaxerxes. So even if, according to the Torah, the high priest should have been the highest of all the Jewish religious authorities, the fact is, it wasn't working that way as long as Ezra was alive. And second... Ezra decided to assemble all the people at the water gate and not at the temple. Now some of this may have been a simple matter of logistics and that perhaps there would not have been enough room in the temple courtyard for everybody to meet. However, there's also the matter that before him stood not just men but also women and children. And so this presented issues of ritual cleanness and therefore of who could be allowed into the temple court. Meeting at the water gate, which was a non-religious location in Jerusalem, solved all those problems. And third, Ezra was speaking to all the Jews, not just the leadership, although that would change on the second day of the assembly. But especially he was talking to the common folks. Now this idea of teaching the law to the common citizens as well as to the leadership brings home an important principle that should not get lost since in our study we focus primarily on the necessity of good leadership as the linchpin of any society. And that is especially true for a society set apart for Jehovah God of Israel. So it's no excuse for the common people to shun their individual responsibilities or involvement just because God requires strong leadership. The Torah speaks to the formation of a community of God. 
And so each piece plays its role as a member of the community. When an individual refuses to do his or her part, it weakens the fabric of the community. It means somebody else has to pick up the slack or has to assume a role that maybe the Lord did not create them to do. Each one of you before me today, whether you're in person or you're listening in, is a member of the community of God. You're also a member of your local community. If you are part of a congregation like Seed of Abraham, or even Torah class online for those who have no formal fellowship to attend, then that is your community, even more so than the township or the city you reside in. And the Torah teaches, and so does the New Testament as well, that as a member of this community of God, you have obligations. You have obligations to your Lord, you have obligations to your brethren. And while those obligations allow a measure of flexibility and preference on exactly how to contribute to the community, no one is given the option to abdicate that responsibility. No one. Now I've stated before that a scientific research done by the Barna Group exposes just how far the church in general has fallen down on this issue of personal responsibility because on average only 5% of the people of any given fellowship of believers volunteer their time and talents. 5%, 1 in 20. Only 20% of the people supply over 80% of the financial support. Now, while Seed of Abraham is significantly above those averages, and I commend you for that, we are by no means where we ought to be. And so much more could be done in God's name. Now, don't get me wrong. I am grateful and excited for how many people contribute to this community. But just as Ezra showed us in chapter 8, each individual is responsible to the Lord, and you will be held account for it. You can't hide, you won't be overlooked, and you won't be given a pass by God. So it's in your own enlightened self-interest to help shoulder the load in whatever way you can. And young people, that goes for you too. One of the responsibilities that each person had who were listening to Ezra was to begin to observe the biblical feasts that had fallen into disuse. And that included building a sukkah. It also included feasting. It included the duty to provide for those in their community who were otherwise too poor to be able to join into the feasting celebration. Now we finished up Uh, last time with my explaining another important matter that has become quite confused and divisive over the past centuries. It is a matter of what our English Bibles call holy convocations and how this extends to a supposed day of worship. And this matter has led to all sorts of disharmony 
not just within the church, but between Jews and Messianics and Gentile Christians. Now briefly, when we see the biblical call for a holy convocation, it is typically thought to be an instruction to go and to gather at an assembly of God's worshipers. This is incorrect. In Hebrew, the word for convocation is michra. And it means a reading. It means a proclamation. In some instances, it can mean a summons. It has no connotation of traveling to an assembly of people. There are two primary Hebrew terms that do deal with assembling. Chag and Atzeret. Atzeret. Chag, we discussed last time, and that term is used mostly when referring to the three biblical feasts that require a journey of Hebrews from wherever they are to the temple in Jerusalem. The term Atzeret is used in the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 8. In verse 18 it says, And they read every day from the first day until the last day in the scroll of the Torah of God. They kept the feast for seven days. And then on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly, an atzeret, according to the rule. This is referring to the Feast of Sukkot, which is one of the three festivals that requires a journey to the temple. And where we see the word assembly in English in our Bibles, indeed the word is atzeret, it means to gather, to form an assembly. So they were there in Jerusalem because of the Feast of Sukkot, because it's a chag, a journey, a pilgrimage festival. Then there's this additional instruction to have an assembly, a atzeret, on the eighth day, following the beginning of Sukkot. This led us to discuss that while Shabbat is to be observed in perpetuity, on the seventh day of each week, there is no biblical instruction, Old Testament or New Testament, that everyone should assemble on Shabbat as part of that observance. For a few centuries and up to our day, the common term used for a communal gathering of believers on a designated holy day is the day of worship. Thus, since Jews still observe Shabbat on Saturday, which is something we all ought to be doing, something we do here, when they gather together, many people seem to think that they are observing something called a day of worship. That's incorrect. Shabbat is only the day of rest. It's not the day of worship. Christians, on the other hand, do have a day of worship, but it's not a directive from God. It's a custom. It's a custom that was commanded by the Roman Emperor Constantine in the 4th century A.D. And this day of worship was to be on another newly designated day, designated by the church, called the Day of the Lord, which is Sunday, the first day of the week. Again, God has not ordained any specific weekly day of worship, nor has He excluded any day from worship. Every day God should be worshipped. Every day. 
individually or communally. But let me be clear about something. I'm in no way intending to say that it's somehow wrong or inappropriate for Jews to meet together and worship on Shabbat or for Christians to meet together and worship on Sunday nor is it somehow meant only for Jews to worship only on Saturdays or only for Christians to worship only on Sundays we can meet together in communal worship any day every day Shabbat included with God's complete approval however this entire day of worship concept is contrived it's a man-made doctrine and it was made and created to accomplish one goal don't ever forget it it was to put a wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles that's why it was created and you know what it's worked quite well seed of Abraham meets on both Saturdays and Sundays to make a point both days are appropriate for Jews and Gentiles to come together to worship together you know what and if we decided to do it on Tuesday and Wednesday it would be just as appropriate so Jews especially Messianics stop this notion that somehow it's more honoring to God to worship Him on Saturday than on Sunday. And Gentile Christians, stop this notion that it was God who made Sundays as a day of worship for believers in Jesus. And therefore Saturday is for those who don't believe in Messiah and Sunday is for those who do. One day is not superior to another to worship the Lord in private or in a gathering. But you do have every right to your own preference in this regard. My admonition to you is please don't judge anyone on what day or days they choose to have communal worship because the Lord doesn't. Let's move on to chapter 9. Now before we read it I want to begin by explaining that this chapter is essentially a prayer. It's a prayer of confession and repentance. Now it's hard to classify as any specific kind of literature, but it is closer to poetry probably than anything else. And it's also, it also greatly resembles the 106th Psalm. But if we will listen to this prayer closely, when I read this to you in a couple minutes, so Follow with me and please give it all your attention. And if we open our hearts to the Holy Spirit, we're going to be reminded of His faithfulness, His power, His love, and His salvation in our own lives. Not just for an eternal purpose, but also oftentimes for deliverance from impossible troubles and woes here on this earth in this present life. So, open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1141. 1141. Nehemiah chapter 9. This is long. 
On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel wearing sackcloth and with dirt on them assembled for a fast. Those descended from Israel separated themselves from all foreigners. Then they stood up and they confessed their own sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. Standing where they were, they read in the scroll of the Torah of Adonai their God for one quarter of the day. For another quarter they confessed and prostrated themselves before Adonai their God. On the platform, the Levaim, the Levites, stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shevinyah, Buni, Sherevyah, Bani, and Kanani. They cried out loudly to Adonai their God. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Kamiel, Bani, Hashvanyah, Sherevyah, Hodiah, Shevanyah, and Patachiah said, Stand up, bless Adonai your God from everlasting to everlasting. Let them say, Blessed be your glorious name, exalted above all blessing and praise. You are Adonai, you alone, you made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their array, the earth, all the things that are in it, the seas, all that's in them. You preserve them all. The army of heaven worships you. You are Adonai, the God who chose Avram. You brought him out of ur Kasdim. You gave him the name Avraham. Finding that he was faithful to you, you made a covenant with him to give the land of the... Uh, Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites to give it to his descendants. And you have done just what you promised, because you are just. You saw the distress of our ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their cry by the Sea of Suf. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all of his servants and the people of the land, for you knew how arrogantly they treated them. You won yourself a name, which is yours to this day. You divided the sea ahead of them so that they could pass through the sea on dry land. Then you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into turbulent waters. In a column of cloud you led them by day, and by night a column of fire, so that they would have light ahead of them on the way that they were to go. You descended upon Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them right rulings, true teachings, good laws, and mitzvot, commandments. You revealed to them your holy Shabbat. You gave them commandments and laws in the Torah through Moses, your servant. For their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. For their thirst, you brought forth uh, for them water from the rock. You ordered them to enter and possess the land you had sworn with your hand to give them. But they and our ancestors were arrogant. They stiffened their necks, they ignored your commandments, they refused to listen, they paid no attention to the wonders you had done among them. No, they stiffened their necks. And in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return them to their slavery. But because you are a God of forgiveness, merciful, full of compassion, slow to grow angry, full of grace, you did not abandon them. Even when they cast themselves a metal calf, saying of it, This is your God that brought you up from Egypt, and committing other gross provocations. Still, you and your great compassion did not abandon them in the desert. The column of cloud did not leave them by day, it kept leading them along the way. By night, the column of fire kept showing them light and the path to take. 
You also gave your good spirit to teach them. You did not withhold man, manna, from their mouths and provided them with water to quench their thirst. Yes, forty years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell up. You gave them kingdoms and peoples. You even gave them extra land so that they took possession of the land of Sichon, also the land of the king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the countless stars in the sky and then you brought them into the land about which you had said to their fathers that they should go in and take possession of it. So the children went in, they possessed the land as you subdued ahead of them the Canaanites living in the land and you handed them over to them along with their kings and the peoples of the land for them to do with as they wished. They took fortified cities and fertile land, possessed houses full of all kinds of good things, dug out cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in plenty. So they ate their fill and grew robust, luxuriating in your great goodness. Yet, they disobeyed. They rebelled against you, throwing your Torah behind their backs. They killed your prophets for warning them that they should return to you and committed other gross provocations. So you handed them over to the power of their adversaries who oppressed them. Yet, in the time of their trouble, when they cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And in keeping with your great compassion, you gave them saviors to save them from the power of their adversaries. But as soon as they had gotten some relief, they went back to do evil before you. So you left them in the power of their enemies who came down hard on them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven many times and saved them according to your compassion. You warned them in order to bring them back to your Torah. Yet they were arrogant. They paid no attention to your commandments, but they sinned against your rulings, which if a person does them, he will have life through them. However, they stubbornly turned their shoulders, stiffened their necks, refused to hear. Many years you extended them mercy. You warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you handed them over to the peoples of the lands, and even so in your great compassion you didn't completely destroy them, nor did you abandon them, for you are compassionate, a merciful God. Now therefore, our God... Great, mighty, fearsome God who keeps both covenant and grace. Let not all this suffering seem little to you that has come upon us, our kings, our leaders, our kohanim, that's our priests, our prophets, our ancestors, on all your people from the times of the kings of Asher until this very day. There is no question that you are just in all that has come upon us for you have treated us fairly. It is we who have acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and ancestors did not keep your Torah, pay attention to your commandments or heed the warnings you gave them. Even when they ruled their own kingdom, even when you prospered them greatly and the great rich land you gave them, they didn't serve you, nor did they turn from their wicked deeds. So, here we are today, slaves. Yes, in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could eat what it produces and enjoy its good. Enjoy its good. Here we are in it. Slaves. Its rich yield now goes to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. 
They have power over our bodies. They can do what they please to our livestock, and we are in great distress. This long chapter can be divided pretty neatly into five parts, and it really helps when we can see it. Those parts are verse 6, which is about creation. Verses 7 and 8, about Abraham. Verses 9 through 11, the Exodus. Verses 12 through 21, the wilderness journey. And verse 22 to the end, the promised land. This leaves out a possible sixth part, but really it's only a preamble to the extensive prayer prayer that we read here, and that's, that's verses 1 through 5 as the preamble. Now the first verse tells us the timing. It says it's the 24th day of the same month that everything else was happening back in chapter 8. So this is just a continuation. It is Tishri, the seventh month. And the three fall feasts of Yom Teruah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot have just concluded. In fact, Sukkot only ended two days earlier. There is no God-ordained or appointed day after Sukkot until Passover in the first month. So this meeting and event was Ezra's idea. And immediately we see this is no joyous occasion that he's calling the people to gather for. They were to come dressed in sackcloth with dirt smeared all over them. These were traditional signs of mourning. And they were not to eat. This was to be a fast day. Here we have a good example of a follower of God, in this case it's a leader, deciding to hold a special religious event for a pious reason, and there's not a thing wrong with it. We are not restricted from doing things like this, provided we do them in the proper spirit, and that we don't mischaracterize them, or replace God-ordained holy days in the doing. For instance, at Seed of Abraham, we celebrate Hanukkah as a good time to commemorate the advent of Messiah Yeshua. We do not claim it as a holy day, or even as biblically ordained, or even as the day Yeshua was born. In fact, most of the symbolism we use comes from Jewish traditions, such as the nine-branch lampstand called a Hanukkah. However, since there is no day set aside in the Bible to celebrate the coming of Christ, and by the way, there's no commandment to do so, yet most of us would like to remember it. We'd like to thank the Lord for sending His Son to us. We have decided to use the occasion of Hanukkah to do this, understanding that we could just have as easily created something else. Now, Purim is somewhat the same. Purim is a remembrance of when the Jews were saved from annihilation at the hands of the Persians, interestingly, today called Iran. Purim is not called for in Holy Scripture. It's not a holy day. It was just a decision by Jewish leaders to have a big party 
to remember it. To be happy about the result. Since it's based, on the one hand, on a real event, told to us in the, in the Bible, in the book of Esther, but on the other hand, the observance of Purim, um, to commemorate it, is entirely man-made, and all customs about it are born of tradition. So the question is, is it okay for us to celebrate Purim right along with the Jews? Of course. Of course. I mean, let us remember something. If the Jews had been destroyed, we'd have no Messiah. But Esther, in God's providence, outmaneuvered the evil Haman. You know what to do. Let's try that again. Outmaneuvered the evil Haman. Thank you. And the Jews survived. I think this is a pretty good reason to have a party. So we're going to have one. Now, some of the ways it's celebrated today isn't very good. Many Jews take it as a time to get roaring drunk. We don't have to do those things. However, we must never mischaracterize it as God-ordained or holy. It's not. So, Ezra decided that after the end of the three feasts in Tishri, the Jews needed to come together in an attitude of mourning to confess and to repent the cause for their exile to Babylon that required a mighty work of God for a return. Now I want to take the opportunity here to point out yet another Hebrew word used in verse 1 that also means to assemble. Asaf. It is less used than the other two words Chag and Atzeret but nonetheless they all mean generally to come to a public assembly. So after the Jews met in front of Ezra at the water gate on the first day of Tishri they learned from the law of Moses that they were to celebrate Sukkot by building sukkahs, huts, booths. On the second day of Tishri, all but the Jewish leaders were sent home so that they could build sukkahs. And then, a little less than two weeks later, they were to celebrate the Feast of Sukkot for seven days, beginning on the 15th of Tishri. Now, on the 24th of Tishri, Everyone is to return to Jerusalem, assemble, and follow Ezra's instructions to come in a state of mourning. I mean, that was one busy month. Now, it's quite interesting that at this point, the genealogical Israelites were to separate themselves from foreigners. However, what it literally says is they were to separate themselves from the sons of strangers. That is, this was a purely racial division. Now remember that having lived in Babylon and then Persia for almost two centuries, there had been many mixed marriages formed. But these marriages were not being dissolved as had happened many years earlier. And we read about it in Ezra chapter 10. This all happened before Nehemiah arrived on the scene. 
So only actual physical descendants of Jacob were allowed to participate in this special event Ezra called for on the 24th of Tishri. Now on the surface that might seem divisive, even bigoted, maybe hurtful. It's anything but. And this is because the framework of this penitent prayer is the story of Israel's beginning at creation, then the covenant God made with Abraham, then their bondage, uh, the bondage of, uh, of Israel in Egypt, and finally their exodus, and then the possession of the promised land. So, this was to be a prayer gathering that dealt with the Hebrews' natural identity. It simply didn't involve Gentile converts. At least it didn't from Ezra's viewpoint. Why should a Gentile convert feel responsible for something wicked that occurred that neither he nor his ancestors had ever participated in? That was the logic behind this. So, of the several meanings of the word Israel that we find in the Bible, here it is meaning the natural descendants of Jacob and no one else. And the wickedness that would be confessed in prayer is both their own personal sins as well as those of their ancestors. And the term that's usually employed in the scriptures to denote sins of one's ancestors is iniquities. Now, standing, the people listen to the law being read for about three hours. After that preparation, which no doubt revealed to them their many sins, for the next three hours they prostrated themselves and they confessed before the Lord. Leading this along with Ezra was a list of, of Levites. And once done, they were all ordered to stand whereupon a certain named group of Levites led everyone in this prayer. No doubt the crowd did not recite the prayer. Like in a church service, the pastor prays, everybody agrees, perhaps at points along the way, most certainly at the end. Appropriately, the first words of the prayer are praise to Jehovah their God. And I want you to know that every single time we read the word Lord or Adonai throughout this prayer, what is actually written in the original Hebrew is God's formal name. yud heh so the first words are identifying Yehovah as the creator. It's not some generic God. And thus we begin the first part of the prayer that credits Yehovah as the one who created the heavens and the earth and everything that's associated with them. Now, the term heaven of heavens is probably a Hebraism that denotes greatness or majesty or something without peer. See, it's a little complicated. The Hebrew word for heaven is shamaim. Shamaim. Which can be used as both a singular and a plural. And in the Bible, shamaim is used to mean heaven is the place where God lives but also the heavens where the stars hang suspended. 
This can get a little confusing for us because sometimes it's hard to tell if the meaning of the author or editor is the sky and the universe or if it means God's spiritual dwelling place. And part of the reason for this confusion is because the concept of heaven as God's dwelling place versus the heavens as the universe of the stars, planets, and moon was not entirely differentiated in their minds. In some ways, they were considered one and the same. This is why, in our Bibles, God is often pictured as sometimes riding on a cloud or inhabiting a mountaintop, things like that. I mean, let's face it. The reason that modern books written about heaven are currently so popular is because the Bible tells us almost nothing about it. And so people, especially older people, have a great desire to know because the reality of heaven is likely to impact us sooner than later. So some clever writers decided to tell us about it in great detail. Tell us about something that has not been revealed to us in God's words. Now if I sound a little bit skeptical, that's intended. Those kinds of books may be fun to read, but don't put too much stock in them as they are based almost entirely on the author's speculation or imagination or blowing a single word or phrase in scripture out of all proportion and context to come up with something sensational or, frankly, falsely reassuring, according to our modern sensibilities anyway. Thus, when the last words of verse 6 are Tzavah HaShamayim, host of the heavens, then we're not quite sure whether this is referring to the twinkling stars in the sky or to God's angels. And once again, as with the meaning of the word Shamaim itself, the Hebrews didn't entirely differentiate the twinkling stars from angelic spiritual beings. To their minds, they could be more or less the same things. With the invention of telescopes, we were able to finally see that those objects in the sky weren't spiritual beings at all. So, then the challenge of theologians and translators became to decide when in the Bible Shamayim meant God's dwelling place or only the sky. Now, it's my contention that most of the time we cannot tell. Because in the author's mind, stars and angels were generally the same things. As was God's dwelling place and the sky, generally the same things. Now in verse 7, this prayer leaps forward in time. From creation to the era of Father Abraham. Now this makes sense. Because due to Adam and Eve's fall that brought death and sins to this universe shortly after its creation and perfection, it was with Abraham that God took the first concrete step towards remedying the problem. And the remedy began by the division of humankind into a people set apart for God that would become called Hebrews and eventually Israelites and everybody else. This passage also acknowledges that it was Yehovah 
who did the dividing, collecting, and separating. It was God's plan to do so, and he chose Abraham as the first member and the founder of the Hebrew community. Now, Abraham was a resident of Ur of the Chaldees. This is up in Mesopotamia. And God removed him from there. By leaving his land and his father's household, Abraham proved his faithfulness. So next, God made a covenant with Abraham that gave to Abraham and to his descendants land that was currently occupied by six different people groups who are generally labeled in the Bible as Canaanites. All six of these people groups are found in Genesis 15. However, there are more groups named there that this verse in in Nehemiah excludes. But nonetheless, it is clear that the historical memory of the Jews of what was promised to them through Abraham remained real. And it still mattered even after 1,400 years had passed. And most important, history proved that the Lord did what He said He'd do. He took this land from the Canaanites, He gave it to to the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites. Now, verse 9 shoots us forward in time yet again to when Israel was in Egypt. The deliverance of Israel from Egypt is burned into the memory of the Hebrews in Ezra's day as perhaps the single most important salvation event in their history. Even greater than their relatively recent release from the Babylonian exile. And what we see develop in this relatively recent uh, rather what we see develop in this, this history of deliverance from the oppression of Egypt is God's character. We've seen his power explained and seen it demonstrated in so many ways. But now, his concern and his love for Israel and his faithfulness to bring everything about that he had promised, that's what's highlighted. God watched over his people. He saw their distress. He heard their cry for help. He didn't just listen passively like we listen to a recorded song. He didn't just watch passively as we might entertain ourselves observing captive ants in an ant farm. Instead, he acted. The Lord performed signs and wonders against all the Egyptians in order to rescue his people. The Lord deemed Egypt as his enemy because... The Hebrews were his people. And so this dynamic that God had promised to Abraham so many years earlier changed from theory to reality. In Genesis 12.3, I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse anyone who curses you. And by you all the families of the earth will be blessed. At first, Egypt blessed the descendants of Abraham. So, using Joseph, the Lord enabled Egypt to survive a a regional famine and then to thrive. But later, as Egypt turned against the Hebrews by enslaving them, God turned against the Egyptians 
and in time he smote them terribly. Blessing for blessing, curses for curses, promise fulfilled. Embedded in this verse is the phrase, and you won for yourself a name which is yours to this day. Name, Shem, means a reputation, means a set of of recognizable attributes. And the reputation that the Lord gained was as a savior, as a deliverer. And as the verse implies, the salvation of Israel from Egypt was not a one-time event. Salvation of His chosen people as an inherent characteristic of God remains to this day. The recounting of the Dead Sea crossing that we find here now vividly portrays that there is nothing in existence, not even the mighty sea, which can keep God from rescuing those He elects to call His own. In fact, when the waters were parted, the Lord even dried the pathway so that their passing would be relatively easy for those three million frightened and exhausted refugees and their animals. A big lesson is demonstrated in the Red Sea deliverance. When we try to save ourselves, we struggle and we struggle. Two steps forward, one step back. We try one way, we try another way. Frustration is our lot. The pathway is hard, and as it turns out, it's impossible. But when in our faith we turn our salvation over to the Lord, that struggle to achieve salvation by our own efforts ends. He does it for us. And He just gives it to us if we want it. There is no muddy swamp to trudge through. There's only dried land. The enemy who constantly pursues us, who doesn't want to lose us, is not allowed to prevent our deliverance. We cross over. The seas closed up behind. The pathway is made impassable for Satan. Now, we are safe on the other side. Provided we stay there. Provided we stay there. And that is because going back to Egypt on our own accord is always a possibility. If salvation doesn't turn us into mindless robots, then we've lost our free will. That's not the case. This is true physically, it is true spiritually, and it remains so even through the millennium when Christ is reigning on earth. Well, verse 12 takes the newly redeemed Israel on their journey to the land of promise. God didn't deliver Israel and depart. He stayed to oversee and to guide the way. Whether in darkness or in daylight, the Lord showed them the way they should go. Professor Williamson is the only commentator I know of who spotted a wonderful pattern in these next few verses. It goes like this. God goes on 
to provide first guidance on their journey to their new home, the pillar of fire and the cloud. Second, laws for guidance in every aspect of their lives as redeemed people. Third, sustenance and material provision for the reality of everyday physical life out in that harsh wilderness. And fourth, assurance for the promise of the land when they arrive. But then despite all this, the people rebelled against the Lord. They didn't care for His laws. They didn't care for His provision. Instead, they wanted to turn back to Egypt. They wanted to have their evil taskmasters care for them. But in God's continuing mercy, He didn't void the covenants He made with Israel, either with Abraham or with Moses. And when the people repented, and they called out to Him, He once again provided guidance on their journey to their new home. His spirit for guidance in every aspect of their lives as redeemed people and sustenance and material provision for the reality of everyday life in the wilderness. I promise you, I promise you that those who will give their lives to our Deliverer, our Yeshua, can expect the same because He is faithful and He is God. We'll pick up with verse 13 and Israel's remembrance of their arrival at Mount Sinai next time.